first half of the book of Exodus tells the story of ancient Israel being rescued from slavery. And when people say the Exodus story, those are the chapters they're referring to. But the book has a second half where Moses gives the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these instructions about building a sacred tent. And what links these two halves together is this crucial story. The people of Israel, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They find themselves at the foot of this mountain called Sinai. And here God's presence comes dramatically down in the form of a violent storm cloud. Now let's stop a second and talk about this concept of God's presence because it's really important for the rest of the book. At the beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden, humanity was in God's presence presence they had this close relationship with him and it was good but humanity rebels and the relationship is fractured and access to god's presence is lost but god promised abraham that he would restore his blessing to all of the nations and that includes this restoration of relationship and access to god's presence so here at sinai god's presence is now right here in front of them and it's actually quite frightening And he's here to invite Israel into this unique and close relationship with him. And the word used to describe this relationship is covenant. It's like a legal agreement between God and Israel. And it's unique because up till now, God hasn't asked Israel to do anything in return, just to trust him. But here on this mountain, God is going to ask Israel to do something. A lot of things, actually. He gives them a whole set of laws. It includes the Ten Commandments. And if they obey these commandments, they will become the people who will represent God to the nations of the world. Like a priest would. Yeah, in fact, that's what God calls them to become, a kingdom of priests. And this is all connected back to the promise to Abraham that his family would become a blessing to the nations. Okay, but obeying these laws is going to be difficult because... There's a lot of them, and they set a really high standard. Though if you think about it, I mean, of anybody in the world who should be able to do it, I mean, it's these people who experienced firsthand God's grace and his power when he rescued them from slavery. And, and they agree to obey the terms, but then they refuse to go into God's presence because it's, well, it's still a bit frightening. And since the people won't go up, Moses goes up to the mountain by himself to meet with God. But God still wants to be with all of his people. And so he says, okay, if the people won't come up here to me, I'll come down off this mountain to be with you all. And that's why he orders Moses to build this elaborate tent as a place where God's presence can be among his people. And that's why the next thing we get is seven chapters of extremely detailed architectural blueprints for this tent. It's really, really really long but every detail is important and has some kind of symbolic value for example there's all this garden of eden imagery inside the tent and it's to remind you that when you're in the tent you are in god's presence then we get another six chapters describing how they built the tent which is really just repeating the same blueprints word for word now let's back up because before the tent is finished there's this super important story moses is coming off the mountain with the ten commandments and the blueprints in his hands And he finds Israel breaking the first two commands of the covenant. Don't have any other gods before me and don't worship idol statues. Right. And so here we are immediately after agreeing to the covenant. They're throwing this ritual party. They're worshiping an idol. And so God says to Moses, you know what? This is is not going to work. I should just wipe these people out and start over with you. But Moses reminds God of his promise to Abraham and pleads with God to spare them, which is a really weird conversation. Why would... God need to be reminded of something. Yeah, it does seem odd. But this dialogue is inviting us into God's experience of grief and pain due to Israel's actions. And he really could walk away. But instead, this God chooses faithfulness to his own promises, even though he knows it's going to cost him. 
So we come to the end of the book. The tabernacle's built, God's presence comes down off the mountain to fill it. And in the final scene, Moses goes to enter the tabernacle to be in God's presence. But he can't. He's actually not able to go inside, and that's how the book ends. Why can't he go in? That was the whole point. So when Israel worshipped the golden calf, it was like a slap in the face to God's faithfulness. And so Moses can't just waltz into the tent like everything's just fine. There's a deeper problem still in this relationship. Will they ever be able to fix the relationship and go into God's presence? Well, that's what the next book, Leviticus, is all about. Wow. So I'm going to be reading from the Immerse Bible, and it's uh, chapter 24, verses 1 through 22. If you're reading from the Bible, the Immerse Bible, it's on page 122, about two-thirds of the way down. Otherwise, it should be behind me. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to bring me their sacred offerings. Accept the contributions from all whose hearts are moved to offer them. Here is a list of sacred offerings you may accept from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat hair for cloth, tanned ram skins and fine goatskin leather, acacia wood, olive oil for lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and other gemstones to be set in the ephod and the priest's chest piece. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. Have the people make an ark of acacia wood, a sacred chest, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it inside and outside with pure gold and run a molding of gold all around it. Cast four gold rings and attach them to its four feet, two rings on each side. Make poles from the acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings at the side of the ark to carry it. These carrying poles must stay inside the rings, never remove them. When the ark is finished, place inside it the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, which I will give to you. Then make the ark's cover. The place of atonement, from pure gold, it must be 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. Then make two cherubim from hammered gold and place them on the two ends of the atonement cover. Mold the cherubim on each end of the atonement cover, making it all of one piece of gold. The cherubim will face each other and look down on the atonement cover. With their wings spread above it, they will protect it. Place inside the ark the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant which I will give to you. Then put the atonement cover on top of the ark. I will meet with you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubims that hover over the ark of the covenant. From there I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. Pray with me. Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand and by understanding that we may believe and by believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.
There we go. Huh? Who remembers that? Huh? All right. So we came to the place in the Old Testament where we're, uh, God has given instructions to build the ark and the tabernacle to his people. And because we're in the midst of this building project, I thought I'd come, bring my tools. Uh, you know, I've got my tool belt on. I've got some tools here to be able to work with. You know, I've got, everybody has to have a drill, right? Okay, so I've got my drill. Got a tape measure. You know, right? You know how to use a tape measure. Got to measure twice before you cut. You know, you don't want to make a mistake that your wife's not going to be happy about later on. Got my hammer back here. So got some nails up here, so I'm ready to go. And uh, probably have as much uh, expertise of these tools as Tim Time Taylor did on uh, on home improvement projects. So now, if you guys kind of get a little sleepy, you begin to nod off a little bit, I'm going to start pulling out the, the tools here a little bit. I got a circular saw up here. So now who knows how to run a circular saw out there? If I need some help, raise your hand. Okay, so we got a few people to do the circular saw. So I also got some blueprints, right? Because you got to have blueprints. You know, blueprints are really the instructions, the the directions from the architect on how to build the structure or build the building so that it's done well, it's done right, that the building is going to function in the way that it was purposed to function. It's going to be safe and secure. Now, my question when I got these blueprints this week was, they're not blue. Why do they call them blueprints? Okay, there's no joke here, so we're going to look at that at another sermon later on, <laughs> another time. So Diane and I, uh, we've been married for 29 years now. We've bought some furniture, quite a bit of furniture over our marriage, and some of that furniture we've had to put together. I know some of you have bought furniture like that. Uh, Diane's dad, Warren, is actually really quite a handyman. He's pretty pretty good at those kind of projects. And so sometimes when he would be around when we got that furniture, he'd help us with that project. And one of the things I learned about Warren fairly early on in our marriage is he was good at those projects, but he also liked the challenge of doing the project without reading the instructions. Anybody else out there that likes to do it that way? You know, most of the time it actually worked out okay. He kind of really did figure it out. He knew what he was doing. But there were a few times like we'd get we'd kind of get closer to the end and We'd be looking at a part that looked pretty major and be wondering, where, what is this all about? Where does this go? Or the drawer wouldn't be open and right, or something wasn't quite level on that project, and we'd have to start over again and do it over again. But God gives the Israelites his blueprints, literally. He gives them a building project, right? Go build an ark, a place that I want you to secure these commandments that I've given to you, a place that you won't lose them or forget them. And also in that ark is going to be the place that I'm going to reside with my presence Uh, to dwell with you. And then I want you to build a tabernacle. And the tabernacle is a place that I'm going to dwell and that you're going to be able to come and worship me and learn how to worship me and worship me on a regular basis. So how did we get here in the Old Testament? How did we get to this place where we're building these things called a tabernacle and an ark? So we've been reading through Immerse, the first five books of the Bible. And we've kind of worked our way through Genesis and, and quite a bit of Exodus up until this point. And in the Bible, this first part of the Bible, we see that in the beginning, God took chaos and he created this amazing world and he brought order out of nothing. And the oceans and the land were formed. And then in his, just the amazing creativity, his creatures filled the earth and all their beauty and all their intricacy and this, the variety of creatures. And it all culminates in the creation of human beings who we're told in Scripture are created in the image of our designer of God. And shortly after this beautiful creation is set in order, 
Humans sinned and rebelled against the God, the Creator, and the relationship was fractured. And the divine and sinful humans uh, could no longer walk in intimacy any longer. We're told that God walked with Adam and Eve in the beginning in a close relationship. But after the fall, intimacy and companionship with the divine was lost. And as we read through Genesis and Exodus, we see the depth of the sin and the brokenness. We see deceit. We see theft. We see uh, power and evil at work. We see murder. We see sexual sins. We see uh, human generations or we see family generational sin repeating itself over and over again with new generations in every family. We see the world spinning further and further down. And yet God is still present and God is still at work. And God began working a plan even from the beginning of the fall that would ultimately bring redemption for all that was lost and broken. He had, he had a set of blueprints, if you will, a set of blueprints that would ultimately lead to the full redemption of the world. And he selected a man, Abraham, and his family to bless them so that they might be a blessing to others. In fact, he tells them, you're going to be a blessing to all the other nations. And we've been reading about the story of Abraham and his offspring. And last week we heard and read about how uh, God led the uh, Israelites out of Egypt. He redeemed them. He freed them from slavery to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. And, th- and then he brought them out to the wilderness. We just read and we learned again that he gave them the gift of his Ten Commandments to define the values and the identity of God's people in a covenant with a holy God. And these commandments are literally God's gift to his people. God's law helps them know right from wrong. It again, it creates an identity that other nations and other people groups did not have. They, the other people groups didn't have commandments from God the Creator, from the divine. And so now God gives them specific instructions to build a tabernacle so that he can dwell with them. And he gives them, again, these divine blueprints for this dwelling. And it starts in Exodus chapter 25, where Rob was reading from here just a little bit ago. And it just continues through the rest of the book of Exodus. So I want to go back to and actually look at Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9 again. And just try to read those two verses again. It says, "Have Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. God was very specific that the instructions that I give you need to be followed to every little small detail. And so God announces his intentions to be present with his people in a way that he had not been since before the fall. And he plans to come and to dwell in their midst in the tabernacle. Now, these instructions are very detailed. In fact, over a third of the book of Exodus is given to the details of the tabernacle, the ark, and all the furnishings that are going to go in those things. And so I just want us to take a look at some of the specifics and think about them. So the first thing that God gives specific instructions about is the ark of the covenant. He doesn't actually give specific instructions about the building of the tabernacle, which is the much larger structure that's going to house all of the furniture and, in fact, even house the Ark of the Covenant. Why would God start with the very, the very specific chest called the Ark of the Covenant and not the greater structure around him? So I think the Ark is really the focus of God's presence with his people. We've got an image here of what the ark looks like that's been created according to what somebody looked like uh, from the instructions that we read in scriptures. And so the ark, again, is the central point of contact between heaven and the tabernacle and the earthly symbol of heaven. And the ark becomes a physical reality that communicates the holiness of God 
The ark is not something that's to be handled casually. In fact, there's instructions in Scripture that you're not supposed to even touch the, the ark. And we learn that later on, that, that it has quite weight to those instructions, because later on in Second Samuel, we hear the story about how the ark is being moved from one part of Israel to uh, Jerusalem to prepare for this throne that, that David is taking over. And so as the ark is being moved, one of the guys who's helping move the ark on a cart, the cart hits some bumps and it's rattled, and the ark kind of shifts, and Uzzah grabs a hold of the ark to try to keep it from falling over, and as soon as he touches the ark, he's struck down. So to touch the ark literally would bring death. And the people are instructed to place the testimony of God, the Ten Commandments that God has just given to them, into this sacred ark. And from the cover of the ark were these cherubim, these angelic creatures. God will meet with his people and speak with them. And it's God's location over the cover and between the cherubim that the cover is regarded literally as God's throne. And the ark is considered his footstool. A few of the passages in Old Testament speak of God being enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark represents God's holiness, God's presence. And it also holds the sacred law. And God, it's God's supreme self-revelation to His people. And the Ark is the center of gravity of God's presence with His people. And so He's given them very specific instructions and directions about how to shape and form this Ark for His covenant. And then he gives instructions about the tabernacle. And the tabernacle becomes the center of Israel's worship of God. So after he's given them instructions about the ark and a table and a lampstand, then he's given them specific instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. All of Exodus chapter 26, in fact, is literally this detailed description of the design of the tabernacle. You've got, we've got an image here of what it might have looked like uh, in, in the time that um, the Hebrews were in the wilderness You've got this kind of curtain, large kind of wall of curtains that, that create, that is the outside of the tabernacle. Uh, you can see on the bottom lower right, kind of this open area. And this would have been the side that people would have entered into. It's a courtyard, basically, and that people would gather and, and worship and offer sacrifices. There's a kind of a square altar in the middle of that courtyard where they would have offered sacrifices of animals. And then behind that square, much smaller circle between the square and what is that larger kind of tent-like structure at the top left, this circle is kind of this area where there was a cleansing station. It was a place that they would be cleansed by pure water as the priests especially would begin to enter into the holy place that's in the tents. And so we also have a bird's-eye view of what that might have looked like as well. And so this is like looking down on the tabernacle. And so, again, you've got that open area to the right, We've got that altar and that cleansing table. You've also got then that smaller rectangle that's to the left, and that's the holy place. So the the right side of that, the smaller rectangle, about two-thirds of that rectangle, would have been the holy place. That would have been the place that the priests would have entered on a regular basis to offer sacrifices and to do liturgy uh, as they worship God. And then to the far left, in that kind of smaller third rectangle, that would have been the holy of holies. And that's where they placed the Ark of the Covenant. So that's where the Ten Commandments would have been. And again, that's where God's presence came to reside, kind of on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. That cloud and that cloud of smoke and fire literally is where we're told that God descended down into that tabernacle. So the description of all the materials that were used in the instructions, if you read all of it, it seems kind of a bit tedious. But, you know, if you're an architect or you're a structural engineer or you're an artist, 
It's very fascinating to see about all the details. And it should remind us of the detailed account or description that's in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, the account of the creation, how detailed it was as well. And so the tabernacle actually seems to represent a microcosm of creation itself. The tabernacle in its splendor and its beauty of the materials used, we're told about fine fabrics, precious metals, precious jewels and stones. All of those things affirm the goodness of God's creation when he originally created it. And the precise and the perfect dimensions of the tabernacle indicate a sense of order amidst chaos in the rest of the world. And more than that, it's a piece of holy ground in a world that has gone and lost its own way. And so God takes one more significant step in his plan of redemption to help the Israelites understand who he is and what he's about. And part of that plan is so that they might experience his presence and begin to learn how to worship him. He had been kind of seen as a distant and faraway guy, but now he's with them. He's present with them, and they learn how to worship him. So the tabernacle would be the center of Israel's worship for 500 years from this point until King Solomon, the son of King David, would build the temple in Jerusalem, and that would then become the residence of the ark and God's presence with Israel. So what does all this mean, all this detail and all these instructions that we have about the tabernacle and the ark and all the religious ritual? What does it mean for us? Does it have any meaning for us today? Well, I actually want to build a bridge from what was described in the Old Testament to even where we're at today, and I want to start by even pointing some things out about Jesus. So on two occasions... In the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as either the new temple or the new tabernacle. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus himself says, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And so the Jewish people thought he was talking about the temple that was on the temple mount, the building, the structure. But, But John quickly points out, no, Jesus was talking about his own body, his own flesh and blood as being the temple. And then in John chapter 1, verse 14, John says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And so this is that part where John's explaining that the Word is Jesus, who existed before time even uh, began. And so this, um, the word uh, dwelling in that passage, the Greek word dwell, that stood for dwelling, was literally the translation for tabernacle. And so what the verse is saying there is that Jesus tabernacled Uh, among us, among his people. This is huge. This is so important to think about how God's presence has shifted from this tent-like structure called the tabernacle to the temple, and now it resides in God's flesh in Jesus Christ. So this is so important. What the tabernacle, tabernacle was made for was to connect people to God, and what the priest did sacrificially in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifices Those things only partially accomplished what we needed. But in Jesus Christ, the fullness was embodied in all that we need in the flesh and the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we go to the back of the New Testament, to Revelation, and we're told at Christ's return, his second return, that another chapter will be written on the same theme. At the dawning of the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 22, tells us that there's going to be no temple in this new city, in this new creation, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So again, the presence of God will be in front of all of us in the second coming of Christ. And so between the first and the second comings of Christ, there's another state of affairs, and that's where we exist today. We're between the first and we're between the second. 
And so Christ, the new temple, has ascended to be with the, his Father. His presence, however, has not left his people, for he sent us his Spirit to abide with us, and not only to abide with us, but to abide in us. And so literally, God's Spirit takes up residence in us who believe in Christ. And this is what Paul means when in his description of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let's read it out. I'll read it for us. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. That is so powerful. And Paul continues the thought in 1 Corinthians 6.19. He says in 6.19, one more verse. Next slide, please. There we go. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. So Paul's point is between the first and the second comings of Christ, that the church, both collectively, universally, but also individually, realizes the intimacy between God and his people that was first experienced at the building of the tabernacle. God, or Christ himself, is literally holy and sacred ground in whom the glory of God resides. And with the spread of the gospel after Christ came, that God's glory can now be seen in new temples all over the world, right? Wherever men and women repent and come to faith in Christ, wherever people gather together in worship, God's presence, is his glory is with us. God's sacred space is no longer restricted to a tabernacle, a tent in the wilderness. No longer restricted to a temple in Jerusalem. No longer restricted to being in a man who walked 2,000 years ago. Now God's presence literally is spread all over the earth. God dwells with his people, the church. God dwells within every believer, wherever he or she may be, wherever you or I am, God's spirit dwells with us. We are the tabernacle of God. Christians, because we are in Christ, we have become the tabernacle of God. What does it mean for God to take up residence in us? I want us to stop and just reflect for a moment on the implications of who God is and what God has done for us. This is no small thing that we have become tabernacles for God's presence. And God fashioned us with material that was far more precious than the gold or silver or the precious jewels or the fine linen that was used to build the tabernacle. Literally, God has rebuilt us in the image of the risen Christ so that even we reflect heaven here on earth, a piece of heaven. We are worthy of the Spirit's indwelling because we've been recreated by the power of God into heavenly beings. Wow! That is amazing what God has done through this whole process and where he has brought us to, just to think that we literally now are the tabernacle for God's presence, the holy and powerful God of all creation residing within us. So what does it mean? Well, the tabernacle was a place of worship, a place of giving God praise and acknowledging that he alone is worthy. It's a place of connecting with God. Worship can be described as a place where heaven and earth meet. This is why we go to church on Sunday. When the saints of God meet together for the purpose of worship, we are worshiping in a holy time, in a holy place. This is a holy time. This is a holy 
place because God is with us. God is present. God dwells with us in the midst of our worship together. There's something different. There's something set apart, something holy about Christians meeting together at an appointed time and place each week. We don't always want to go to church. We don't always like going to church, right? Sometimes we think it can be a little boring. Sometimes we want to take a break. Let me be honest with you. There are times that even as pastors, we want the same things. Well, not Doug, but maybe, you know, the others of us, right? But here's the deal. We need to remind ourselves of a profound mystery that God is dwelling among his people. At its best, church is not a place where programs happen. At its best, it's not a place to go and be noticed by others. It's not a place to meet people. It's not even a place to listen to sermons. At its best, it's where heaven and earth meet. And we experience the presence and the power of God with us. Going to church is also a testimony. It is. It's a testimony to the chaotic world that exists out there. As redeemed people, we participate in heavenly reality. Worshiping God collectively one day out of seven is a sign to the rest of the world that there is something other. There is something higher than, than the private universes that people create for themselves. We bear visible, tangible witnesses that God's order is not the order of the rest of the world. We demonstrate that even though we, that we follow different rules, we follow God's rules. And in so, so doing, God is glorified as we do these things. We also reflect the divine order by how we live day to day in a fallen world. When we think of our bodies as a temple of God, it puts sinning in a whole different perspective. This is really Paul's point in 1 Corinthians when he equates individual Christians at Corinth with the temple. Some in Corinth were engaging in sexual sins, immorality, and Paul's rebuke essentially amounts to this. What are you thinking? You can't do that. You can't do that in God's holy temple. God's presence is residing within you. Don't you know God is with you? You can't do that. Knowing that we are literally the temple for God's presence should cause us to pause and to think seriously about committing sins of commission, consciously sinning against God's known will. As God's temple, we we should strive to follow God's pattern, even to the smallest detail. And yet we know, don't we? We know we're not perfect. We're not going to be perfect, are we? But when we fall short, we know that God is still working in us. We are a building project in process, He's working about redemption in us individually, but also his church and even the world. We know he's still working us. He's not finished yet. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Paul says, whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. The story of the Bible is nothing less than God's initial intimacy with his creation. And the severing of that intimacy when sin came into the world. And the steps that he is taking to restore that intimacy. And the ark and the tabernacle in Exodus are one more step that God is taking toward that redemptive plan of moving forward the redemption of his creation through the presence ultimately of his son, Jesus Christ, in whom the embodiment of all that we see in the Old Testament 
takes realization in Christ, in His flesh and blood, in the Spirit of God present in that one person. And then ultimately we're told again that God's Spirit it dwells within us. And by tabernacling with us, He demonstrates that we are participating in literally the last chapter of the redemptive story and plan that God is at work until Christ returns again. Let's pray. Father, we just take time to pause and to reflect just on this incredible story about how you have been working since the, the, the fall, since sin entered in. You've been working a new plan to redeem all that was lost and all that was broken. God, we thank you that, that the story of the Old Testament just gives us context to understand our great need for you, our great need for Christ to come and live a perfect life, to come and offer his life as an atoning sacrifice and to experience the resurrection from the dead and that we now are made righteous in and through our faith in Christ Jesus. And God, your spirit has taken up residence in each one of your children who believe and follow Christ in faith. So God, we recognize that we literally are tabernacles that embody your spirit. God, remind us of the calling that you've placed in our lives to pursue you, to live in an intimate relationship with you, to give ourselves fully to you, to allow your spirit to be at work through us, to fulfill the mission that you've given the church, to bring glory to you, to spread the good news of the gospel to all in this world. God, we're thankful for this amazing, amazing redemptive story that we get to participate in. We offer ourselves now, God, as we prepare to dine with you in in intimacy at your table. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.